Welcome back to The Sinner, a podcast about understanding the present by putting it into some historical context. Thank you for listening. This is episode 8, The Art of Diplomacy, International Relations, Foreign Policy and Real Politic. Imagine you are 10 years old and you're at school. Some new kid shows up who is clearly being bullied by a bigger kid. What do you do? Your personal intervention might prevent that kid from ever getting bullied again. Then again, you might get blacklisted by the bully and be the subject to way worse than what he's seeing. Just then, some other kid joins in with the big bully, urging you to join the bullying. You know it's getting bad after you recognize that one of the kids who's doing the bullying is actually your friend. Your reaction could be to exit and think of your excuses. Or you could join the crime and forget the guilt. Or you can tell them all to stop and then you face the consequences. Or you wish some other big kid or other kids show up and break up the mess. This event is no different from what countries face between one another. The interactions between nations are like those kids. The pros call it foreign policy or international relations. Diplomacy is you thinking about your actions, planning the response and navigating the interactions between you and the rest. In short, doing what's in your best interest. Here's a quote. The supreme art of war is to subdue the enemy without fighting. Sun Tzu, the art of war. He was a Chinese general in the 5th century BCE. I love that quote. Here's another one. A diplomat who says yes means maybe. A diplomat who says maybe means no. And a diplomat who says no is no diplomat. That's Charles Maurice Talleyrand, French diplomat, who should know, by the way, since he served during Louis XVI, the French Revolution, Napoleon, Louis XVIII, and King Louis Philippe. The English word diplomacy is derived via French, from the ancient Greek diploma, composed of diplo, meaning folded in two, and the suffix ma, meaning an object. The folded document conferred a privilege, often a permit to travel on the bearer, and the term came to denote documents through which princes granted such favours. Diplomacy later became identified with international relations. Diplomacy It's an established set of norms of influencing the decisions and behavior of foreign governments and people through dialogue, negotiation, and other measures short of hot war or violence. In this podcast, we will get familiar with the key terminologies and the main events in history that got us to this point, at least to when I am recording this in January 2021. We look at the treaties and interactions between state actors that created the international framework that we have today. By the end of this session, although you won't become an instant diplomat on the world stage, you'll know that it's not rocket science. It's steeped in history and executed by flawed individuals that ultimately make for fascinating research. Let's look at international relations. Like the you in the school playground, international relations is all about wheeling and dealing, keeping up appearances and getting your country's interests ahead of others in a near lawless system built on a history of norms, institutions, flimsy rules called international laws and treaties. Ever since we had some kind of legal state, we had international relations. In its purest form, international relations is pretty much just an academic study of diplomacy and foreign policy. International relations, often shortened to IR, is the study basically of politics, economics and law at a global level rather than in a national level. In other words, it's an academic discipline and not the actual activity. So what is foreign policy? Foreign policy is the purpose and activities in relation to one country's interaction with other state or states, whether bilaterally or multilaterally. International relations is different because it is the study of those activities. Foreign policy, however, like diplomacy, 
are the actual policies and activities. It's the what you do. What I'm about to embark on now is to explain the history of foreign policy, international relations, and the art of diplomacy using history as our guide and teacher. Before jumping into that, though, I want to look at one other question. What is international law? International law, or the law of nations, is a set of rules, norms, and standards traditionally accepted in relations between nations. It establishes guidelines and a framework to guide states across a broad range of domains, including war, including diplomacy, trade, and human rights. International law aims at the practice of stable, consistent, and organized international relations. The sources of international law include international customs, treaties, and general principles of law recognized by most national legal systems. To be clear, international law differs from state-based legal systems in that it is primarily, although not exclusively, applicable to countries rather than to individuals, and operates largely through consent. Since there is no universal accepted authority to enforce it upon these sovereign states, consequently, states may choose not to abide by international law and even break a treaty. However, such violations, particularly of customary international law and norms, can be met with cohesive action, ranging from military intervention to diplomatic and economic pressures. So unlike laws inside your country that impact you, international law is norms, customs and treaties that impact countries. You may be wondering what then is the international community. I'm going to be crude here and define this in the most simplistic terms. It is the five Christian English-speaking countries led by generally the liberal class of the Washington, D.C. establishment. Hangers-on include Western Europeans with sometimes on-and-off involvement of South Korea, Japan and Eastern Europe. Typically, everyone else is outside of the international community. In short, there is no such thing as an international community unless you are seeking approval from the English-speaking liberal elites. War. War is what we do. We've done this as a species since time immortal. It is conflict between two people taken to the state level. War is essentially an intense armed conflict between states, governments, societies, or even paramilitary groups such as mercenaries, could be insurgents, and even militias. It is generally characterized by extreme violence, aggression, destruction, and mortality, using regular or irregular military forces. The difference between war and what is called total war is warfare that is not restricted purely to legitimate military targets and can result in massive civilian or other non-combatant suffering and casualties. In a total war environment, you can bomb and burn Dresden or Tokyo because they supply the front lines. You can drop nukes on cities. Everything is game. In the past, a siege of a city could also be considered total war. The collapse of the city could mean anything from rape, butchery and enslavement. War and total war are common throughout human history. So what's a treaty? A treaty means it's an international agreement concluded between states in written form and governed by international law, whether embodied in a single instrument or in two or more related instruments and whatever its designation. Think of it like a contract, one that could be broken at cost to both parties. I want to spend some time on some important treaties from history, because international relations are so dependent on historical customs and norms. As we navigate the treaties, 
it becomes clear that not only have we not changed all that much since humans were governing city-states or early kingdoms, but the current situation we are in is also temporary, and it's likely to change. There are numerous treaties on record through history, everything from Greek city-states and Iran to NATO and the Warsaw Pact. However, I'm going to look at seven events. I'm going to look at one ancient treaty called the Eternal Treaty, one diplomatic norm called the Amarna Letters. Again, this is ancient. The Peace at Westphalia of 1648, the Treaty of Versailles of 1918, the UN Charter of 1945, the Vienna Convention of 1963, the Treaties of Rome, 1957, Maastricht, 1992, and Lisbon, 2007, and the 2015 Paris Accords. Only the Amarna Letters and the Eternal Treaty are bilateral. The others are multilateral examples, i.e. it includes more than one state. Let's start with the Eternal Treaty. The Battle of Kadesh took place between the forces of the New Kingdom of Egypt under Ramesses II and the Hittite Empire under Mutali II at the city of Kadesh on the Ortnus River just upstream from Lake Homs near the modern Lebanon-Syria border. The battle is generally dated to 1274 BCE from the Egyptian chronology and is the earliest battle in recorded history for which details of tactics and formations are known. Fascinating. It is believed to have been the largest chariot battle ever fought, involving between 5,000 and 6,000 chariots in total. The accounts of this battle are mainly derived from the Egyptian sources, from their bulletins and poems, as well as hieroglyphics. Unfortunately for scholars and individuals interested in the Battle of Kadesh, the details that arose Sources are heavily biased interpretations of the events from the perspective of the pharaoh Ramesses II. In other words, there is a lot of propaganda material in this account. The Hittite king, Mutali II, gathered together an army of his allies to prevent the invasion of his territory. At the site of Kadesh, Ramesses foolishly outdistanced the remainder of his forces and after hearing unreliable intelligence regarding the Hittite position from a pair of captured prisoners, the pharaoh pitched camp across from the town. Although the Egyptians were able to survive a terrible predicament in Kadesh, it was not the splendid victory that Ramesses sought to portray, but a stalemate in which both sides had sustained heavy losses. After an unsuccessful attempt to gain further ground the following day, Ramesses headed back south to Egypt bragging about his individual achievements during Kadesh. Even though Ramesses technically won the battle, he ultimately lost the war since Mutali and his army retook Amaru and extended the buffer zone with Egypt further southward. What this battle ultimately produced was called the Eternal Treaty, or the Egyptian-Hittite Peace Treaty. It is the oldest surviving peace treaty between two states, also is the oldest surviving treaty between two states. Best of all, we have both sides of the treaty available to us. Often, you only get the one. The Hittite version was found in the Hittite capital of Hattusa, now in Turkey, and is preserved on a baked clay tablet uncovered among the Hittite royal palace's sizable archives. Two of the tablets are displayed at the Museum of Ancient Orient, part of the Istanbul Archaeology Museums, while the third is displayed in Berlin's State Museums in Germany. The Egyptian version of the peace treaty was engraved in hieroglyphics on the walls of two temples belonging to Ramesses II in Thebes. Those scribes who engraved the Egyptian version of the treaty included descriptions of the figures and seals that were on the tablet that the Hittites actually delivered. Now let's look at the treaty itself. I'm going to look at two clauses in the treaty. So let's start with the first clause, clause one. Divided into points, the treaty flows between the Egyptians and Hittites 
as each side makes pledges of brotherhood and peace to the other in terms of objectives. The treaty can be seen as a promise of peace and alliance since both powers make the mutual guarantee that they would not invade the other's land. That provision ensured that both participants would act in harmony regarding the disputed Syrian holdings and, in effect, established boundaries for the two conflicting claims. No longer, according to the treaty, would costly Syrian campaigns be waged between the two Near Eastern powers as a formal renunciation of further hostilities is made. Clause 2 promoted an alliance by making reassurances of aid, most likely military support, if either party was attacked by a third party or by internal forces of rebellion or insurgency. The other stipulations coincide with the Hittites' aims in that the Hittite ruler placed great emphasis on establishing legitimacy for his rule. Each country swore to the other to extradite political refugees back to their home country, and in the Hittite version of the treaty, Ramesses II agreed to provide support to the Hittite king's successors to hold the Hittite throne against dissenters. After the conclusion of the provisions detailing the extradition of emigrants to their land of origin, both rulers called upon their respective gods of Egypt and the Hittites to bear witness to their agreement. The treaty proclaimed that both sides would forever remain at peace and bound the children and grandchildren of the parties. They would not commit acts of aggression against each other, they would repatriate each other's political refugees and criminals, and they would assist each other in suppressing rebellions. Each would come to the other's aid if it was threatened by outsiders. Interestingly, the text concludes with an oath before a thousand gods, male gods and female gods, of the land of Egypt and Hittite. Witnessed by the mountains and rivers of the lands of Egypt, the sky, the earth, the great sea, the winds and the clouds. If the treaty was ever violated, the oathbreaker would be cursed by the gods, who then shall destroy his house, his land and his servants. Conversely, if he maintained his vows, he would be rewarded by the gods, who will cause him to be healthy and to live. Amazing, isn't it? That old? But before we get too excited... Just know that the treaty was not actually adhered to. The two were back at war. Then, let's look at the next item. The Amarna Letters. The Amarna Letters are an archive written on clay tablets primarily consisting of diplomatic correspondence between the Egyptian administration and its representatives in Canaan and Amaru, or neighbouring kingdom leaders, during the New Kingdom between around 1360 and 1332 BCE. The written correspondence spans a period of at most 30-odd years. These letters, compromising of cuneiform tablets written primarily in Akkadian, the regional language of diplomacy in the period, were first discovered around 1887 AD by local Egyptians who secretly dug most of them from the ruined city of Amarna and sold them in the antiquities market. The archive actually contains a wealth of info about cultures, kingdoms, events, and individuals in a period from we, well, we don't know much about. It includes correspondence from Akhetan, who was also titled Amenetop IV, as well as his predecessor Amenetop III's reign. The tablets consist of over 300 diplomatic letters. There are a lot of these letters, and they are infinitely fascinating. I'll quote from some parts of some of them just to give you an idea of what ancient monarchs talked about in terms of diplomacy. Here's one letter between Egypt and Babylon, from Egypt to Babylon. My daughters who are married to neighboring kings, if my messengers go there, they speak with them, They send me a greeting gift, but none with you is poor. Now I have heard the message you sent to me concerning it, saying, You seek my daughter for your wife, and my sister, who my father gave you, is there with you, but no one has seen her now. Whether she is alive or whether she is dead, this is what you sent me in your tablet. These are your words. When have you sent me your dignitary, who knows your sister? 
who can converse with her and identify her and let him converse with her. Here's another letter, this time between Babylonia and Egypt, but from Babylonia to Egypt. It says, Moreover, you, my brother, when I wrote to you about marrying your daughter in accordance with your practice of not giving a daughter, wrote to me saying from time immortal, no daughter of the king of Egypt is ever given to anyone. Why not? You are a king, you do as you please. Were you to give a daughter, who would say anything? Since I was told of this message, I wrote as follows to my brother, saying, someone's grown daughter, beautiful woman, must be available. Send me a beautiful woman, as if she was your daughter. Who is going to say she is no daughter of the king? But holding to the decision that you have sent me anyone? Did you yourself not seek brotherhood and amenity, and so wrote to me about marriage, that we might come closer to each other, and did not? I for my part write to you about marriage for this very same reason, brotherhood and amenity, that we might come closer to each other. Why then did my brother not choose to send me just one woman? Should I perhaps, since you did not send me a woman, refuse you a woman, just as you did to me and not send her? But my daughter's being available, I will not refuse you. There are more letters. These tablets are scattered across museums in Egypt, Russia, the US, the UK, Germany and France. They are so fascinating. It's amazing how so much correspondence is related to having family ties, having people married off, and kings worrying about their daughters and siblings in the other's court. Moving away from ancient times, I want to move to 1648 and what is known as the peace at Westphalia. When that apple fell off the tree, Sir Isaac Newton didn't discover gravity. Apples had been falling off trees forever. All he did was codify what happened. Likewise, the peace of 1648 codified in treaty what had been building up to this point or to that point. That the idea of state sovereignty, meaning what's mine is mine, What's yours is yours. You stay out of my business so I can stay out of your business. It's a complex treaty for a complex peace, but I'm going to break it down into about three points. One, that all parties would recognize the peace of Osberg in 1555, in which each prince would have the right to determine the religion of his own state. The options were Catholicism, Lutheranism, and also Calvinism. Secondly, Christians living in principalities where their denomination was not the established church were guaranteed the right to practice their faith in private as well as in public during allotted hours. And thirdly, France and Sweden were recognized as guarantors of the imperial constitution with a right to intercede. I'm of course oversimplifying and really generalizing a very complex treaty at the end of of the Thirty Years' War, which in itself was a very complex war. The treaty brought peace to the Holy Roman Empire, closing a really nasty period of European history. There were two treaties signed, one at Onnesbrook and one at Munster, both in Westphalia. The collective name of these two treaties became the Westphalian Treaties. Talks took place in two cities because each side wanted to meet on territory under their own control. A total of 109 delegations arrived to represent the belligerent states, but not all delegations were present at the same time. They ended the Thirty Years' War and technically brought peace to the Holy Roman Empire, closing a devastating stretch that cost an estimated 8 million people's lives or about 30% of the Holy Roman Empire's citizenry. Academics have actually identified the Peace of Westphalia as the origin of principles crucial to current international relations, including borders and non-interference in domestic affairs of sovereign states. This system became known in literature as Westphalian sovereignty. The reason this treaty takes so much significance is because for the past 150 years before the treaty, and the next 300 years after the treaty, it would be the Europeans 
who started to live by this treaty and exported its concepts to their far-flung empires. Oddly, just like the previous treaty we spoke about between the Hittites and Egypt, the treaties did not entirely end the conflicts around the Thirty Years' War. Fighting continued between France and Spain until the Treaty of the Pyrenees in 1659. The Dutch-Portuguese War had begun during the Iberian Union between Spain and Portugal as part of the Eighty Years' War, and went on until 1666. Nevertheless, the Peace of Westphalia did settle many outstanding European issues of the time, and set the stage for future foreign policy, international relations and diplomacy makes this particular treaty, this particular event, one of the most significant in the history of foreign policy, international relations and diplomacy. Let's move on now to the Treaty of Versailles of 1918. This was the most important of the peace treaties that brought World War I to an end. The treaty ended the state of war between Germany and the Allied powers that were pitted against it. It was signed on the 28th of June 1919 in Versailles, exactly five years after the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. That had directly led to the start of the First World War. The other central powers on the German side signed separate treaties. Although the armistice signed on the 11th of November 1918 ended the actual fighting, it took six months of negotiations at the Paris Peace Conference to conclude the peace treaty. The treaty was registered by the Secretariat of the League of Nations on the 21st of October 1919. Of the numerous provisions in the treaty, one of the most foremost and controversial required Germany to accept responsibility of Germany and her allies for causing all the loss and the damage during the war. This article, also known as Article 231, later became known as the War Guilt Clause. The treaty required Germany to disarm, make ample territorial concessions and pay reparations to certain countries that had formed the Etant powers. In 1921, the total cost of these reparations was assessed at something like 132 billion gold marks. In today's money, that's about in US dollars 442 billion or in UK GBP 284 billion because of this treaty the ensuing hardship that was felt in germany coupled with the double loss of humiliation hyperinflation plus this pandemic called the spanish flu helped grow the rise of the national socialist party also known as the nazi party led by adolf hitler one of the other outcomes of this treaty was the formation of the League of Nations. The League of Nations came out of the 1919 treaty. Although the treaty was signed at Versailles, the negotiations happened in Paris. During those discussions, the concept of the League of Nations was created. This was the first worldwide intergovernmental organization whose principal mission was to maintain world peace. It was founded on the 10th of January 1920 following the Paris Peace Conference that ended the First World War and ceased operations on the 20th of April 1946, about a year after the end of World War II. The organization's primary goals, as stated in its own covenant, included preventing wars through collective security and disarmament and settling international disputes through negotiation and arbitration. Other issues in this related to labor conditions, just treatment of native inhabitants, human and drug trafficking, the arms trade, global health, prisons of war, and protection of minorities in Europe. Yeah, in Europe only. The League, though, lacked its own armed force and depended on the victors of the Great War for its activities. At its height in the mid-30s, it had about 58 members. The credibility of the organization, however, was weakened by the fact that the U.S. never joined the League and the Soviet Union joined it and then was expelled for invading Finland. Germany withdrew from the League, so did Japan, Italy, Spain and others. The onset of the Second World War showed that the League had failed in its primary purpose, which was to prevent any future world war. 
The league lasted for 26 years. The United Nations, or the UN, replaced it after the end of the Second World War and inherited several of the agencies that were built around the League of Nations. And now we're going to look at the UN. The UN was established after World War II with the aim of preventing future wars, just like the League of Nations. It was established on the 25th of April 1945, one year before the League of Nations was made ineffective. 50 governments met in San Francisco for a conference and started drafting the UN Charter, which was adopted on the 25th of June 1945 and took effect on the 24th of October 1945 when the UN began operations. The organization's objectives included maintaining international peace and security, protecting human rights, delivering humanitarian aid, promoting substantial and substantiable development, and upholding international law. At its founding, the UN had 51 member states with the addition of South Sudan in 2011. Membership is now actually 103 countries, representing almost all the world's sovereign states. As the young organization started to take shape, its mission to preserve world peace was complicated in its early decades by the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, and their respective allies. Its missions have consistently and primarily consisted of unarmed military observers and lightly armed troops with monitoring abilities, reporting and confidence-building roles. UN membership grew significantly following widespread decolonization beginning in the 1960s. Since then, 80 former colonies have gained independence, including 11 trust territories that have been monitored by the Trustee Council. By the 1970s, the UN budget for economic and social development programs far outstripped its spending on peacekeeping. After the end of the Cold War, the UN shifted and expanded its field operations, undertaking a wide variety of complex tasks. The UN has six principal organs, the General Assembly, the Security Council, the Economic and Social Council, the Trusteeship Council, the International Court of Justice and the UN Secretariat. The UN system includes a multitude of specialized agencies, funds, and programs, such as the World Bank Group, the World Health Organization, the World Food Program, UNESCO, UNICEF, etc. Additionally, non-governmental organizations may be granted consultative status with the UN and other agencies to participate in the UN's work. The UN's chief administrative officer is the Secretary General, currently a Portuguese national and politician, diplomat, Antonio Garitas, who began his five-year term on the 1st of January 2017. The organization is financed by assessed and voluntary contributions from its member states. Although the UN has fared better and lasted longer than the League of Nations, it is still dependent on the post-1945 world. In 2021, the UN can appear outdated. The five permanent members are still the victors of World War II. The main paymasters are the US, China, Japan, Germany and France. It has been a talking shop for about 75 years. That being said, the non-political work that the UN has undertaken has been admirable given all the politics. The activities of the World Health Organization or peacekeeping operations or the Food and Agriculture Organization, among many others, all have made a difference to people's lives, often for the better despite the political talking shop problems, red tape and politics that this works under. Only Indonesia has ever left the group, and that too because Malaysia joined the UN, only for the country to return a few years later. The UN is an example of a multilateral agreement with established rules and norms. The creating, and more importantly, the success of the UN is probably the single biggest treaty achievement in human history, even with its never-ending flaws. Next up, the Vienna Convention. The Vienna Convention on Consular Relations is an international treaty that defines a framework for consular relations between sovereign states. It codifies many consular practices that originated from state customs and various bilateral agreements between states. It was adopted in 1963 and has been forced since 1967. 
the treaty has been ratified by about 180 countries. The convention defines and articulates the functions, rights and immunities accorded to consular officers and their offices, as well as the rights and duties of, inverted commas, receiving states, where the council is actually based, and, inverted commas, descending states, where the state and the council represents. The convention formalized the use of diplomats, their shared rights in the foreign country, the mechanics for operating between countries, diplomatic immunity, Diplomatic immunity is the legal immunity that ensures diplomats are given safe passage and are considered non-susceptible to laws or prosecution under the host country. Modern diplomatic immunity was codified as international law in the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations. The ability to create missions, embassies or high commissions was also established under the Vienna Convention. In short, the modern norms around diplomatic behaviour were established and codified because of the Vienna Convention. Now moving on to three treaties which I will look at together. The Treaty of Rome, 1957, the Maastricht Treaty, 1992, and the Lisbon Treaty, 2007. These three treaties, covering a span of 50 years, are the main treaties that constitute the current European Union, possibly one of the most consequential set of treaties to have ever been signed. In 1957, Belgium, France, Italy, Luxembourg and the Netherlands, plus West Germany, signed the Treaty of Rome, which created the European Economic Community, or EEC, and established a customs union. They also signed another pact creating the European Atomic Agency Community for cooperation in developing nuclear energy. Both treaties came into force in 1958. The European Union was formally established when the Maastricht Treaty, whose main architects were Helmut Kohl and François Mitterrand, came to force on the 1st of November 1993. The treaty also gave the name European Community to the EEC. This also enabled further enlargement to occur. And it included the former communist states of Central and Eastern Europe, as well as Cyprus and Malta. The Copenhagen criteria for candidate membership to join the EU were agreed upon in June 1993. Signed in December 2007, but entered into force on the 1st of December 2009, the Lisbon Treaty reformed many aspects of the now EU. It changed the legal structure of the European Union, merging the three EU pillars system into a single entity provision with a legal personality that created a permanent president of the European Council, the first of which was actually Herman van Rompuy and strengthened the position of the High Representative of the Union for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy. The the Lisbon Treaty was a landmark in that it was a step in creating ever closer union and as close as you can get to a single political entity without going out and creating a country in its own right. Something, in other words, that all members could agree on at that time, but to set the stage for a future, even closer political union. Moving our attention now to the Paris Accords of 2015. This is an agreement within the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, dealing with greenhouse gas emissions, mitigation, adoption, adaption, and finance. This was signed in 2016. The agreement's language was negotiated by representatives of 196 countries at the 21st Conference of the Parties of the UNFCCC near Paris. It was adopted by consensus at the end of 2015, Now, although the agreement was lauded by many, including François Hollande, the French President, and UN Secretary-General Bai Can Moon, criticism has surfaced. For example, James Hansen, a former NASA scientist and a climate change expert, voiced anger that most of the agreement consisted of promises or aims and not firm commitments. He also called the Paris talks a fraud with no action, just promises and feels that only a cross-the-board tax on CO2 emissions could form part of the plan. In short, Paris 
was Paris because it was the only agreement everyone could actually agree on. Remember, 190 plus countries were negotiating this. It was a multilateral treaty. Like the treaty to create the UN and the EU, it was highly ambitious. However, unlike the treaties of the UN and EU, the implementation of this was not so ambitious. Under the Paris Agreement, each country must determine plan and regularly report on contribution that it undertakes to mitigate global warming. No mechanism forces a country to set a specific emissions target by a specific date, but each target should go beyond previously set dates. In other words, it's an honours system. Moving on to something else. What about the term real politic? It might be a term you've heard of. It was coined by a chap called Ludwig von Raschau, a German writer and politician in the 19th century. His 1853 book called Principles of Real Politik applied to the national state of affairs of Germany. It was a first time the word was used. Whereas real politic refers to political practice, the concept of political realism in international relations refers to a theoretical framework aimed at offering explanations for events in the international relations domain. The theory of political realism proceeds from the assumption that states as actors in the international arena pursue their interests by practicing real politic. I will now look at a few key people through history who have played an important role to determine this realistic foreign policy. We're going to look at three players, or three writers, as it were. Sun Tzu, a Chinese military strategist who wrote The Art of War that foreshadowed elements of real politics that was developed later. Chanakya or Kautolya, an early Indian statesman and writer on the Arashastra. And Niccolo Machiavelli, an Italian political philosopher who wrote the book The Prince, in which he held that the sole aim of a prince was to seek power regardless of religious or ethical considerations. Let's start with The Art of War by Sun Tzu. The Art of War is an ancient Chinese military thesis, roughly 5th century BCE. The work, which is attributed to the ancient Chinese military strategist Sun Tzu, is composed of about 13 chapters. Each one is devoted to an aspect of warfare and how it applies to military strategy and tactics. For almost 1,500 years, it was the lead text in an anthology that was formalized as the Seven Military Classics by Emperor Shenzong of Song in 1080. The Art of War remains the most influential strategy text in East Asian warfare and has influenced global military thinking, including business, legal, lifestyles, and beyond. Here are some quotes from the book. Hence the saying, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. All warfare is based on deception. Hence, when we are able to attack, we must seem unable. When we are using our forces, we must appear inactive. When we are near, we must make the enemy believe we are far. When we are far, we must make him believe we are near. End quote. Let's move on to the book The Arishastra, which was written by Chanakya, also sometimes known as Kautalya. Chanakya was also the guardian of the emperor Chandragupta Maurya. The text apparently could also have been written over several centuries, composed and expanded and retracted from the 2nd century BCE and the 3rd century CE. So the Arishastra may have had connections with Chanakya, but improved or changed upon over time. It was rediscovered in 1905 by R. Samashastri, who published it in 1909. The English translation wasn't published until 1915. The title Aryashastra is often referred and translated to as the science of wealth, but the book has a broader scope. It includes books 
on the nature of government, law, civil and criminal court systems, the ethics, economics, markets and trade, methods for screening ministers, diplomacy, theories on war, nature of peace, and the duties and obligations of a king. The text incorporates Hindu philosophy, includes ancient economic and cultural details on agriculture, mineralogy, mining and metals, animal husbandry, medicine, forests and wildlife. Two things from this text stand out for me on the topic of international relations. One, on the covert. The Arishastra dedicates many chapters on the need, methods and goals of secret service and how to build then use a network of spies that work for the state. The spies should be trained to adopt roles and guises to use coded language to transmit information and be rewarded by their performance and the results they achieve. Secondly, the war. The Irish Astra clarifies war into three broad types, open war, covert war and silent war. It then dedicates chapters to defining each type of war, how to engage in these wars, and how to detect that one is target of covert or silent war. The text cautions that the king should know the progress he expects to make when considering the choice between waging a war and pursuing peace. Here's a direct quote. When the degree of progress is the same in pursuing peace and waging war, peace is to be preferred, for in war, there are disadvantages such as losses, expenses and absences from home, end quote. Kautalya in the Arishastra suggests that the state must always be adequately fortified, its armed forces prepared and resourced to defend itself against acts of war. Kautalya favours peace over war because he asserts that in most situations, peace is more conductive to creation of wealth, prosperity and security for the people than war is. According to the Arishastra, all means to win a war are appropriate, including assassinations of enemy leaders, sowing discord in its leadership, engagement of covert men and women in the pursuit of military objectives and weapons of war, deployment of accepted superstitions and propaganda to bolster one's own troops or to demoralize the enemy's troops, as well as open hostility by deploying kingdoms' arms forces. After success in a war by the victorious, just and noble state, the text argues for humane treatment of conquered soldiers and subjects. Next, we'll look at Prince by Niccolo Machiavelli. Our earlier two works were much older than this one. The Prince is actually a 16th century political dissertation written by the Italian diplomat and political theorist Niccolo Machiavelli as an instruction guide guide for new princes and royals. The general theme of the prince is of accepting that the aims of princes, i.e. politicians, such as glory and survival, can justify the use of immoral means to achieve those ends. The prince starts by describing the subject matter it will handle. In the first sentence, Machiavelli uses the word state in order to cover in neutral terms all forms of organization of supreme political power, whether republican or princely, possibly leading to the word state as we use it today. Machiavelli generalizes that there were several virtuous Roman ways to hold a newly acquired province using a republic as an example of how a prince can act. One would be to install one's princedom in the new acquisition or to install colonies of one's people there, or whichever is better. Two, to indulge the lesser powers of the area without increasing their power. Three, to put down powerful people. And four, not to allow a foreign power to gain reputation. The book states, when the kingdom revolves around the king, with everyone else his servant, then it is difficult to enter, but easy to hold. The solution is to eliminate the old bloodline of the prince. Yes, he means slaughter the defeated, and not just him, but his entire bloodline. So what do you do with the conquered states? The prince gives us three options. One, ruin them, as Rome destroyed Carthage. Two, go live there and rule it personally. Three, keep the state intact, but install an oligarchy, i.e. a puppet. Machiavelli advises the ruler to go the first route, stating that if a prince doesn't destroy a city, 
he can be expected to be destroyed by it. To summarize, the art of diplomacy, the study of international relations, and the use of foreign policy instruments are not new but ancient. It was and is run by flawed individuals, flawed institutions, and broken promises. It is thus a reflection of our own human nature. Today, as we live through January 2021 and beyond, massive elaborate ecosystems exist in order to keep the so-called normal course of international order going. No one leads it, no one runs it. It just happens because countries need to interact with each other without always resorting to hot conflict, abusive behavior, or uncertainty. Ultimately, though, your interests collide with others' interests, but sometimes someone has to lose, while some lose even more than others. Let's go back to my earlier playground analogy. Maybe that beaten-up kid is Libya or Syria, or even Iraq, beaten to a pulp, outside actors making their own internal struggles difficult. It could also be Angola, a poor kid in the school, with less resources than a kid like Germany who doesn't even need to build a muscle because he has a big kid, the USA, to defend him. Or it could be China, building strength, then one day wandering around like he can take on the US. Clever diplomacy, foreign policy and international relations can make you Germany or Japan. Big muscle can make you China, Russia or the US. But being big, without muscle, can make you India, Brazil or South Africa. The rest, they're the kids just watching, looking on, seeing what the big guys are doing and the rich guys are doing. Thank you again for taking time to listen to the Sinner podcast. I'm on Spotify and Acast. You can also support me on Patreon and Acast. Thank you again. <laughs>